The curse of Marie Laveau. She sprinkled her last bit of black salt on, into the meat of the fowl, blood trailing down her arm as she held the animal high into the air. Oh Lord, I beg that this of my enemy shall come to pass, that the south wind shall scorch their bodies and make them wither, and it shall not be tempered to them that the north wind shall freeze their blood and numb their muscles and it shall not be tempered to them that the west wind shall blow away their life's breath and their fingernails shall fall off and their bones shall crumble and the east wind shall make their minds grow dark their sight shall fail and their seed dry up and never multiply I pray that the sun shall not shine down its rays upon them in benevolence, but shall instead beat down and burn and destroy them. I ask that the moon no longer give them peace, but in that wake shrivel their minds and send them into insanity. I ask you, Lord, for these things, for they have dragged me in the dust, broken my heart, and caused me to curse the day I was born. Just then a crack of thunder hit near the chicken house, and she ran out into the yard to find that old fire ant mound. She lay the dead bird upon the mound and watched as the ants rushed to fill its blood-soaked orifices, making it move as though it were reanimated under the twilight sky. They would devour her work, and filter its energy down, down into the heat of the ground, and out of sight. The curse that would be carried straight down to knock at hell's door. This is Natural and Wild with Christine Grayson. I'm an Appalachian artist, a nature lover, and a storyteller. There's so much venom and poison in the natural world that I have way too many subjects to choose from that I could talk about here. But I also have an uncle who loves to purchase poison dart frogs, and that was what helped me make my decision today. Welcome to my show. Poison dart frogs some of the most beautiful frogs on the planet. Sometimes the most beautiful things are the most dangerous things. Poison dart frogs do this thing that's called backpacking their young. They'll carry their tadpoles and their eggs on their backs, the males being the main caretakers and transporters in this way. And they'll water, they'll move, they'll protect their young, and the females will get a little bit lazy and let the fathers do all the work. Now in a controlled setting where some scientists were studying these frogs, only when a fathering frog was removed from the scene would the female get up off her rear and take care of her own babies. But as long as those fathers were doing it, she saw no reason to interfere. She'd sit back, eat a few insects, enjoy herself, and then they went on to try another experiment. Now, we call groups of young poison dart frogs clutches, the babies, 
So after the first experiment was done, the scientists kept the fathers out and they moved these clutches around. They wanted to see if the females could differentiate between their own young and other abandoned young that didn't belong to them. And they could. And they were very selective in which clutch they would pick up and move to water. The males, however, would go ahead and pick up any clutch and move them to water. They didn't care if the young belonged to them or, or not. They sort of foster-parented in these scenarios. Poison dart frogs are, of course, poisonous. They are the frog species traditionally used for poison darts, just like the name implies. The Embera people of Colombia, they were the indigenous people who mainly used this source of weaponry. And these frogs are some of the most toxic species in the whole world. One tiny little golden frog has enough in it to kill 10 grown men or 20,000 mice. They don't generally hide from predators because predators recognize their bright colors and know that after eating one, if they live to tell the tale, it was at least very sickening and unpleasant and they won't try to eat one again. Now the kind of insects they eat out in the wild are responsible for developing their toxicity. If they're in captivity, like in a zoo or an aquarium, their handlers will generally feed them insects that do not allow them to develop that poison. I think the type of insects that cause their bodies to develop poison are insects like uh, ants and termites off the rainforest floor, while things like fruit flies especially uh, flightless fruit flies and crickets keep that toxicity at bay if you're raising them or handling them in captivity. It's a, a really good example of what we eat is what we produce sort of thing. Anthropods that produce alkaloids are the primary source of food these frogs use so that they can produce their poison. And if you're not sure what an alkaloid is, it's a chemical that will cause a, a serious physiological reaction in a human being or, you know, most things. For example, morphine and strychnine are alkaloids. And there are lots of anthropods that produce these chemicals. Millipedes are really good sources of it. There are actually mammals like, like monkeys that will specifically hunt down millipedes in order to get high. It won't kill them, but they'll get to enjoy a pretty good trip from it. But if these poison dart frogs eat those millipedes, they can turn their alkaloids into some serious weaponry. Fire ants have these alkaloids, and fire ants are no match for these little frogs out in the wild. Fire ants give them their alkaloids and that they need to develop that poison and then they turn right around again and control and kill that whole colony of fire ants. And then take that source of food away from them and you turn them into pansies. They become too dependent and can't take care of themselves anymore. They've lost their defense. You know, this reminds me of how we've weakened our own society and each other. We've done it physically and psychologically by what we fed each other. You know, in a, in a physical sense, the industry of food we eat. 
but I want to focus on the mentality that we've been feeding each other that's caused us to lose our defense and our mental strength. There was this generation that we tagged the greatest generation. These are the people who grew up through the Great Depression and they, they fought in World War II. There's no real defined date range. Some people get them confused and think that this is the same as the silent generation, but it's not. The silent generation is kind of sandwiched in between the greatest and the boomers, but back to the greatest generation. They grew up learning how to deal with hardships and traumatic events. They didn't have the helicopter parenting that we have today that I know it's not popular for me to say, but actually created a generation of people who get triggered very easily and are not as uh, experienced in handling life all that well. I don't think many of the people of that generation are left uh, because the youngest ones, I think, would be in their hundreds as of last year. Some of them who fought in uh, World War II are still around, but not very many. We do have some people in their hundreds in America, but not, you know, it's rare. <laughs> Adolescents would have placed these people right at the influenza pandemic. And yes, there was another pandemic that required vaccines before COVID. The Great Depression was happening, but at the same time, art and culture was flourishing. Hollywood, this was the, the golden age of Hollywood. Films about gangsters, which would psych everybody up later during Prohibition. Love them or hate them, these people did make a lot of sacrifices. They learned a lot of lessons and they could take care of themselves. They didn't get triggered easily or cry about bad words. The ones who were around last year did criticize our current generation for being such big babies about the COVID vaccine. And that's understandable. If you grew up with hardships like that and without the helicopter parenting or being over sheltered, there's this big tendency to feel a little bit of resentment towards people who have it a lot better than you did. Which is good. I mean, I'm glad people do have it better now. But it does create a little bit of resentment. Knowing that they'll probably never have to see half the stuff that you had to live through. I've had these feelings myself. And I've had to work through them. Just so I don't walk around angry at the general population for that, you know, tendency towards weakness. You know, for example, getting triggered by things like a, a celebrity making a human mistake. You know, our society has gotten to a point where we worship other human beings, like celebrities, politicians, and we expect moral standards from those politicians. Politicians are the most defective people on earth. And I've never understood this kind of idolatry of other human beings. And in turn, the shock that, that moves its way through the masses when somebody does something human or makes a mistake. It's not a shock. We're all imperfect people. So when one of them finally screws up in the media, we're triggered. The whole world comes crashing down. 
this doesn't make any sense to me. While I'm capable of liking somebody a whole lot, having a whole lot of respect for somebody, or having a whole lot of affection for their personality or whatever, I don't think that there's ever been a time in my life where I've actually put anybody up on a pedestal so high that it doesn't leave room for them to make a mistake. That's just weird to me. I have never taken the words of scientists as the only physical law simply because they were scientists and they said so. I've never even taken the words of doctors and surgeons as something final simply because they said so. These people are hella smart, but they're not gods. They don't have all the answers to the universe. Pastors, cardinals, anybody in an authoritative position, these people are not righteous. They're just people. But we've shot each other with these poison darts, feeding each other with this idea that's got us all hypnotized into believing that there's no room for anybody else to be human or to mess up, ever. Especially if their name is attached to some sort of title. So we've become what we've eaten. A very desperate, clingy, very judgmental, very closed society of people who believe that anybody who doesn't stay within these very strict rules and lifestyle guidelines are just the worst people on the planet. And the rest of us are so much better. Poison darts, shooting everywhere. The fact is, this is a dirty world, and none of us have clean hands. Wow, <laughs> I spiraled downwards on that one, didn't I? <laughs> Well, let me come back up for air again, because I don't like to stay down here forever. So scientists at the U.S. Department of Agriculture use poison dart frogs to kill fire ants. Fire ants are extremely aggressive in mobs. They have a caste system, of course. There's the queen, a male alate, they call him a drone, and he's basically just a sex slave, a soldier they have soldiers they risk their lives to protect the queen and then you have your workers and these aggressive colony mobs have been known to kill small animals when they get disturbed and it just happens to be in their way human beings have died from being sensitive to these bites and venom these ants produce an alkaloid that they inject into your skin after they bite you and this produces the sensation of burning, hence the name fire ant. So if you ever want an example of mob mentality with a structured hierarchy out in the wild, just like us when we go on a witch hunt, here you go, the fire ant colony. And they do some serious destruction. You know, fire ants are attracted to electrical fields, computers, air conditioners, water pumps. What does this remind you of? If you know you live in an area with fire ants, make sure you pay attention and take notice of any mounds that might belong to them because they're ruthless. When I lived down in New Orleans, my yard had several of these mounds. You could clean an animal skull overnight by sitting it on top of these fire ant hills. 
And in addition to that, down in Louisiana, there's a lot of hoodoo, a lot of voodoo. And they would use these fire anthills to clean skulls and to do a spell work with. It, it was a pretty common thing. <laughs> these ants are pretty nasty. So when you disturb the mound, a sterile female, she rushes up to the surface and stands on anything to, to make herself higher. A grass blade, sticks, people's legs, and she'll begin to sting and inject venom within 10 seconds. Her venom is even worse than the rest of the workers. And at this point, they should already be up and crawling up whoever disturbed their day. But this sterile female, her venom will generally cause really bad blisters and also sometimes lead to anaphylactic shock and sometimes even death, depending on the size of the animal or the sensitivity or allergic reaction of the human. They're dangerous. So watch out this summer. And on that note, as the summer warms up, the ground's going to dry out and these ants will come up to the surface. Keep some Benadryl around just in case. Keep your feet and your ankles covered and watch where you're walking. Always watch where you're going. We can generally avoid aggressive, agitated mobs of venom, but once in a while, we're going to step on one. And when that happens, move, wash it off, deal with it, deal with a sting, and know it's going to eventually go away. If you're allergic or really sensitive, throw back some Benadryl immediately and get yourself to the ER. This has been Natural and Wild with me, Christine Grayson. I want to thank my best supporters and patrons of this show, Bruce Presson, Sheila McGregor, Chris Nolan, Arnold Bloom, Robin Umber, Yvonne Ragland, and William Bishop. Thank you to those who have helped out via the virtual tip jar at the bottom of my page on my website, christinegrayson.com. Have a great weekend. Watch your back. Do your homework. And don't go anywhere blindly. Take care, and I'll see you next time.